the following stories are very dark, disturbing, and very graphic. The second story mentions the death of a baby. I'll have timestamps in the pinned comment, and I'll have the stories labeled in case you want to avoid any of them. If you have a story like this, or any other story that you might want to send, you can send it in at southerncannibal.com. Please be respectful to emergency worker services. The things they do are not easy, and they truly deserve the respect for the things that they do every day. Alright, let's get into the stories. My name is Maddie. I've been an EMT for a little over two years now. The story I'm about to share is one of the saddest ones I've ever had. Warning, it can be graphic, so if you have a sensitive stomach, feel free to skip. I was working out of our base station with two great paramedic friends of mine. We got toned out for a cardiac arrest of a 27-year-old female. We arrive on scene and we see that the fire department and police department are standing around and not really doing much. My partners and I step on scene, and they inform us that it's a DOA. If you guys don't know what that means, it stands for dead on arrival. The police department informs us that the young woman upstairs is against the wall. We go upstairs and we notice that there's a young woman face down and naked and covered in kitty litter. While my partner Tim was setting up the monitor to see if there was any cardiac activity, I noticed that there was already lividity appearing on her feet and hands. I told Tim that it was pointless to use the monitor. He told me he didn't have any activity anyway. After a while of searching around for a cause of death and looking for medications or really anything of that nature, Tim had brought the mother upstairs to see her daughter. My heart shattered as she saw her little girl just laying there dead. She burst into tears and she could barely speak. She told everyone upstairs with her that she could use a hug, which included myself and the firefighters that were just standing there. I saw that the firefighters were just standing around. I rolled my eyes at them and I handed one of them the post-mortem bag. Then I gave the mom a hug. She cried on my shoulder and squeezed me so tight, but that didn't matter. I let her cry on my shoulder for as long as she needed to. I pulled her aside afterwards, and I told her just how sorry I was for her loss. She then told my partners Tim and Charlie that she suspected her daughter's baby daddy did this to her. She said that he had been on the run for about two years. I don't know if that's what happened, but I do have a theory. It was really odd that when we found her daughter, her head was perfectly up against the wall, so we couldn't see if there was any blood. Also, she was naked. My partner suspects that the victim's baby daddy showed up, they had sex, then he killed her. Also, I don't know if that's what happened, it's just a theory. The last weird clue is there was kitty litter underneath and on top of her body, yet there was no kitty litter box upstairs anywhere. I'll never know what happened to this poor woman and young mother. The saddest part of this story is that her two sons, ages 4 and 7, found their own mama in this state. Also, the mother of the victim had told us that she lost her son earlier this year to brain cancer, and now she's lost her daughter, her only child. My heart shattered. I love my job, but this call has to be the saddest one that I've ever responded to. Two little boys lost their mother, 
and a mother lost her daughter. My prayers still go out to her family. First responders have a really hard job, guys. Please do everything you can to support your first responders. And thanks for listening. Back in my former life when I was young and fit, I was a volunteer firefighter for the local CFA in the town I lived in at the time and had been for a number of years. I'm from Australia. I have many stories, mostly sad to be honest, but these two are the ones that stick with me the most, as the first was actually my very first call out as a full-fledged firefighter, and the second, well, you'll understand why soon enough. A warning, this first story contains descriptions of death and it may be upsetting for some people. So I was 16 at the time and I had just completed my final training to be inducted as a member of the team and be able to attend callouts. It was a Sunday afternoon and we were finishing up cleaning at the station when a call then came through. The captain picked up and took the details and our pagers then began chirping. Single vehicle MVA just out of town on the S-Bend. The stretch of road was notorious and well known by the locals. The stretch of road in question was notorious and it was well known by the locals as it had a sharp S-shaped bend that suddenly pops out of a straight stretch of road out of town on a 100 kilometer area. The bend itself wasn't quite our jurisdiction as it fell under the next town over, but many of the members from that brigade were out of town on a competition. Three of us climbed up into the back of the tanker, captain in the front as driver, and lieutenant as front passenger. Search and rescue had also been dispatched, as there were people trapped. We pull up, and the three of us on the bank descend to the roadside. As we're standing there awaiting our orders from the lieutenant because the captain was talking with the police and SNR, I begin to just take in the scene. About 10 meters down from the first piece of the bend is the wreck of a sedan. It's wrapped around the tree, as though the tree and vehicle are one. The car hit with such force that the bonnet was touching the boot in an almost 90 degree angle. I'm sent with the hose to stand by the bonnet just in case a fire ignites, and I'm to douse it if it does. The driver was being spoken to by an officer, but it wasn't looking good for him. What was the center console was embedded into him, and he barely seemed conscious. I noticed that there isn't much left of a windshield left. The front passenger, or at least what is left of them, has already had a sheet draped over their body, which is half hanging out what was left of the passenger side door. That wasn't even the worst of it though. There was a newborn baby car seat in the paddock to the left of the road upside down. About five feet from there was another tiny sheet covering another body. A tiny one, but just below the fence line was what broke whatever childhood I had left inside of me. There was also another sheet which someone had weighed down with a rock on the edge so it wouldn't blow off. The lieutenant came in and relieved me as the air ambulance was landing and once the scene was declared safe, we finished up and returned to the station. What had happened was that this young family from out of town were heading through as a shortcut. The driver had misjudged his speed in the bend, lost control, became airborne after hitting the ditch and then slammed into the tree on the passenger side on the opposite side of the road, right at about 140 meters from when they first left the road. Heartbreakingly, the baby's car seat wasn't secured properly, 
and the impact of the vehicle hitting the tree catapulted the seat right out of the windshield, as well as the baby out of the seat and right into the fence, then separating the head from the body. That was the first and last MVA I ever attended. The second story is much less heartbreaking, but confronting all the same. I was now a young adult. The month was February, and the year was 2009. It was the middle of a drought, and we hadn't had any substantial rain for over two months. But this day saw an intense storm roll through, with very strong 100-kilometer westerly winds and 45 degrees Celsius, which for you Americans listening, was about 62-mile winds and 115 degrees Fahrenheit. The storm saw lightning strikes and power lines down across the state, the perfect storm for a disaster. Fires quickly and aggressively took hold across the state, with the worst just the east of Kilmore, shutting the major freeway and many of the access roads. This fire took hold before an adequate emergency warning system was then in place. Before 1530, this fire had emerged with the Murrindindi fire, which had already hit so many towns. Flames were topping the treetops at over 30 meters high, feeding off years of vegetation through the national parks and roadsides. With little to no warning, entire towns were lost. By the evening of the 8th of February 2009, there were over 400 fires burning across the state of Victoria, and every single fire truck and volunteer were dispatched. I was called up on strike team the following day, and myself along with five other members joined the fight of what we didn't know at the time to be the fight of our lives to 1300 hours to the Marysville area. Reports were already trickling in of fatalities that had been found by other members, police, and SES, but the fires were still active and very dangerous, so often those emergency services would have to evacuate and it wouldn't be for another two weeks before the total amount of lives lost would then be known. That number was 173 people in one day, most from the towns that I previously mentioned, who had no warning and no way out. Over 400 were injured. Our strike team's job was immediate protection of life. There was still an emerging and critical situation from frantic calls that were coming in nonstop jamming the line. The situation was so precarious that the local ABC emergency radio was the only way for people to get a call out for emergency assistance. My crew, along with several others, were sent to protect a local community who had all hunkered down on the local footy oval with the fire bearing down on them from all sides, driven by the ferocious winds and a literal firestorm created kilometers ahead of the main fire by the fire itself. Not knowing the area, and relying on hard copy maps, as back then GPS wasn't even yet standard, and radio reports our crew found themselves in a gully, ahead of the fire front with the other crews dotted around the oval in a similar circumstance. It went unsaid, but we were all willing to risk everything to save the people of that town. Some were entire generations of families huddled on a footy oval with no way out and no water. The radio sprung to life as the middle of the day turned into pitch black darkness, and we then heard, Mayday! 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 And it came in dauntingly clear. It happened faster than the rest of the emergency broadcast could get out. Suddenly, the firefighter sat next to me is now screaming, Burn over! Mayday! Burn over! Take cover and get down! 
and then drags me down as low as the three of us can get. And the sprinklers on the trunk are pumping water that I'm sure is evaporating quicker than it could cover us. There's a deafening roar. Imagine you're set right behind a fighter jet just as it comes to life. That's the type of loud roar and sizzling that I was sure was going to blow out my eardrums. The truck is rocking chaotically. Random bangs are going off around us, and the air's so thick I couldn't take a breath without choking, and it was hot. Like as though we had been thrown right into a volcano hot. I can't even find the right words to describe the situation. While the driver and team leader took the shelter in the cab, the three of us huddled under woolen blankets with anything exposed burning, while the front bore down on us, determined to eat everything in its path. The burnover felt as though it lasted for hours, but realistically, it was all over in a matter of minutes, as the strong winds fueled the front, hurtling towards the main road and whatever was left of the town nearby. After changing direction swiftly and without warning, just seconds before the crew to our right called in their mayday message, leaving us with no warning and very little time to prepare. Once the front had passed, I realized that Alex, the firefighter that had been seated to the left of me, was now screaming. His hands inside of his face were badly burnt from struggling to hold down the blanket. The radio was fried, but fortunately, help was already on the way as the last Mayday message had been confirmed. The truck was a blackened mess of twisted melted metal and still radiating heat, as I then noticed a nearby crew coming down the gully towards us. Luckily for those townsfolk taking shelter on the footy oval, the wind change meant that they were giving a last minute reprieve and able to be evacuated before another wind change, which meant that the town was yet again in danger. I completed my strike team rotation twice over, and I finally returned to my hometown, which was safe. It would be weeks before the fires were at least brought under control and finally extinguished, and it was these fires that drove major change through emergency procedures and implementing new emergency warning systems countrywide to ensure a repeat of the horrific situation and loss of life should never again be repeated. Following these fires, I left that life behind me. The horrific loss of life I witnessed the grisly stories I heard from the first-hand survivors, and the pain carried in people's hearts and eyes was just way too much for me to bear. That and the near-death experience of being burned alive, despite all of our training and fire awareness, was more than enough to last me a lifetime. Counseling was made available, though sadly, the stigma and toxic masculinity drove people to find solace through other means. For me, that was quitting my role, and moving far, far away to never return again to that area. And I always feel a slight shudder every fire season whenever a warning goes out across media. So I guess the takeaway from my stories is to slow down and make sure everyone is buckled up correctly. You're better off arriving late than ending up dead. And when traveling through fire-prone areas during our fire season, be sure to always carry spare water and a fire blanket. If you don't have one, a pure woolen blanket is ideal, and always, always listen to warnings. Thank you all for taking the time to listen. My first month as an EMT basic, we had the biggest car pileup in our county. It was a pretty big wreck involving semis and multiple cars. I come up to two semis that appear to have rear-ended each other when I notice there's blood coming from between the two semis 
we start pulling it apart, and we realize there's one of those smart cars in there. When they finally get it apart, we realize there was a human in there. It was a woman. And we know this because in the mush that were her remains, there was a brawl. That's my first one. This is my next one. My first traumatic arrest was an 18-year-old boy. We arrive on scene, and the fire department says they heard him take a breath. We gotta work him, so they begin extricating him from the truck. There's an old man there, and he tells me how he was just behind him when the kid turned and got T-boned by a semi. I thank him, and I tell him I'm about to do my best. When we pull the kid out of the truck, I then heard a scream from behind me. The police and fire department had led his family onto the accident scene, and his mother and sister then saw him as we're now pulling his partially crushed body out of his truck. We work him, and I do my best. I do everything right and everything I could. But the kid didn't make it. After we get him to the ER, I go back out to the rig and sit on the back bumper. I needed to clear my head and clean the ambulance. The old man from the scene walks up to me and then thanks me for trying to save his son. Yeah, this job fucking sucks. EMAS first responder here. I've not seen many horrific accidents. I've been the one who's there at the end of a person's life trying to stop it, and I've been the one that succeeded in saving them. But the one call that stuck with me was my first and only road traffic collision. I'm only 22, and this was a year ago, so I was 21 when this happened. I'm also a volunteer first responder, but a top level, so I carry drugs, etc., but am by no means a paramedic. I've done about three months of formal training in total, but anyway, got a call to a motorcycle versus car coming off a roundabout. The motorcycle had two riders, fiancés, and the one driver in the car. The bike had come round the turnoff too quickly and clipped the car at such speed it had sent the driver flying 150 yards down the road, with him being spread at various points across it. When I arrived, there was a person helplessly doing CPR on what little remained on this poor person, and I think they were doing it just out of shock more than anything. His right arm had somehow ended up in the passenger seat of the car. The driver hadn't sustained many injuries, although he turned out to be a hemophiliac, so he wouldn't stop freaking bleeding from the little wounds that he had sustained, which was just one more thing to complicate it all. Finally, the female passenger of the bike. She had been ejected sideways over the car and landed face down in a ditch. As I went over, I could hear her screaming, and you could visibly see about 70% of her bones were broken as well as pointed in different directions. This was more of a problem because that meant that we couldn't get an IV for pain relief anywhere. We eventually managed to turn her over, putting her in so much pain, only to find that she had a laceration right across her stomach and everything was coming out. My job was to hold it all in with my hands while she begged for the pain to stop. The driver walked away fine, and miraculously, after about four weeks in intensive care, the girl survived. Unfortunately, she lost her leg, and more sadly, her fiancé. I think about that couple every time I drive or go on call or do anything. Drive carefully. It doesn't take much to tear a whole world apart.
Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed these stories. If you ever want to submit your own, you can do so at southerncannibal.com. Have a good night everyone, and remember, to always, stay young.